Well, it was about 1980, maybe 1981. I was approximately 10 years old, and I was in the fourth grade. I remember that because my brother was in the seventh grade. When I grew up in California, we didn't have middle school that was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. It was junior high, which was seventh and eighth grade. And I remember that it was my brother's first year in junior high. He was in the seventh grade, which would have meant I was in the fourth grade. And my brother, for one of his first assignments of seventh grade, had to write a book report on a famous American entertainer. And he chose to write a report on this man named Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby, a very well-known singer and actor. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. You know who I'm talking about if you were born back before they had remote controls. Well, my brother, who was older than me and uh, very capable, uh, but like many first children, he early on had a little bit of a speech impediment. He couldn't pronounce some words correctly. And so I remember as a younger brother seeing my brother get sort of shipped off to speech therapy classes for a few days a week. And it sort of developed in me sort of this pity for my older brother. I was, because I was a little bit of a precocious and arrogant little child, always had this thought that maybe I was a little bit, I mean, my brother was always big and strong and brawny, a very good athlete, and I was a little bit more brainy and, 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 and small, and he was always big and strong, and so I always kind of had this pity that, well, my brother got the, the brawn, but I, I, got, I got the brains. And so I always felt like maybe he was a little slow. And I remember it was a weekend, I think it was Sunday evening, and I found this book report that my brother had written in pencil on this famous American entertainer named Bing Crosby. And I read with great interest and a little bit of pity on my brother as I read, oh, my poor big brother, he doesn't even know how to spell Bill Cosby. (laughs) I had never heard of Bing Crosby. (laughs) And because I love my brother, and I didn't want him to turn in this book report with the name Bill misspelled as Bing. I mean, he was a big, brawny football player. He didn't know N-G-L-L. What's the difference? I took it upon myself to edit his two-page book report, and to erase the INGs and replace them with two L's. So his book report was not on Bing Crosby or Bill Cosby. It was on this strange mythical figure called Bill Crosby. (laughs) Well, needless to say, it did not go well for my brother with that book report, and it did not go well with me when it was discovered that I made these edits. Probably the biggest editing error that we make consistently as Christians is when we take the Bible and God and we subconsciously think that He is there to make much of us. When in reality, the Bible says the opposite thing, that we are here simply to make much God. And with that as our backdrop, we're going to read Psalm 115. 
and speak today about the glory of God. Let me read Psalm 115, and I'm going to read, and then I'm going to make three points out of this, and then we will respond with some time of worship and prayer. We've been working out of Psalms here for the past few weeks in the summer, and as I've mentioned before, once we move into the new building, we are going to begin a series through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, where we will work through the entire book, every verse. It will take us probably about six or seven months. I'm really looking forward to that. So begin to read 1 Corinthians on your own to become more familiar with that. But for now, we draw our attention to Psalm 115. I'll read, and then we'll pray, and we'll begin. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so all do who, who trust in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. We're going to draw our attention today primarily to verse 1. So let me read it again and then we'll pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, thank you for your word, for the things that have been shared today, for the freedom that we have in this country to worship you in song. And as we gather to worship you in generosity and to hear the heart of this young missionary couple going to a very difficult place and the, the great privilege we have to come alongside of them. Thank you now for your word that we open and read and we hold out as the very word of God that you have super, superintended through the ages to be preserved for us in all its holiness and grandeur and splendid nature, that it is in fact the very word of God. Lord, we confess that we are by nature idolaters. We are selfish. We by nature turn most of our arrows inward on us. And we edit the storyline of the Scripture most 
most often in our lives, and we want you to make much of us. But the clear storyline of your book is that we are to make much of you. And so now, God, as we contemplate just a few things out of this particular passage as to how it relates to us as a church and us as individuals, Lord, I pray two things specifically. For my brothers and sisters in here who are already Christians, I pray, God, that you would stir our affections for Jesus. We do not primarily need to be helped by some tidbit of wisdom on how to navigate through life more efficiently, but we need to be roused from our slumber and we need to see you and Jesus and the beauty of what you did on the cross in him for our sakes and your glory. We need to see that more clearly and Christians in this room, the greatest need in our heart is to fall more in love with you, God. So would you do that? Would you wipe away the dust in the temples of our hearts and would you break the callousness of our everyday monotony and would you cause us to see and savor Jesus so that our hearts might be stirred and our affections would be awakened for you and God secondly I pray for the person in this room who is not yet a believer they have not yet been born again whether they realize it or not I pray God by your mighty sovereign grace that you would cause them to be born again and that they would see Jesus and that they would turn from self-righteousness and sin and they would trust and faith in Christ alone. And I pray as we leave this room today that surely all of us would be able to say that God has spoken to me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three things that I see in this. I know we're a little bit behind schedule, but let me give you three things that I see in this psalm. The first thing that I see very clear, and I'll just give you these three points and we'll work our way through them and all the notes will be on the internet when we post this sermon later in uh, in the early early part of this week. The first thing I see is that everything exists for the glory of God. Friends, this is not rocket science today. There are no difficult concepts here today. This This is basic stuff, but it is profound. Everything exists for the glory of God. That's point number one. Point number two is that this church exists for the glory of God. And point number three is that you and I exist for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. This church exists for the glory of God. And you and I exist for the glory of God. Point number one, everything exists for the glory of God. Let's ponder that for just a moment quickly. Now, I think we have to do a little confessing here because as modern day Americans who are caught up in sort of the disease of pragmatism, biblical language like The glory of God doesn't translate as easily to us. That's such a lofty 30,000 foot view of what's going on in the scriptures. That's not generally the way we talk. And so it sounds a little religious, a little traditional, a little old school, a little old. And we have trouble connecting with what we mean when we say the glory of God. And I think of that word glory. I've told this story before. Uh, this just came to my mind was I was, when I was learning how to preach when I was on staff at a, another church, Evangel Temple here in town. And there was this, well, it was, it was, there were some painful nights. Let's just put it that way. When I was preaching on Sunday evening in this church, learning how to preach, cutting my teeth. And I would make some point and there were just, I mean, I could just hear crickets chirping. It was really bad. But there was this one old faithful brother in the back of the church. And when I think he knew that I needed a little pick-me-up from, from, from the audience, he'd give me a, Glory, just in the background. <laughs> oh, I miss that guy. <laughs> but when we talk about the glory of God, what, what we mean by that is that 
It is the display. It is the communication to the universe, to everything, to to everything that is. It is the display of the infinite beauty and grandeur of God. Pick your superlative. Pick your adjective. Heap it on there and words will fail us. The glory of God is the display of His infinite greatness and beauty and loveliness and greatness to every person, every molecule, every remote planet, every star, everything that exists. The glory of God, the will of God is to display His greatness to everything. That, that is what we mean by the glory of God and We could take all Sunday on this, but we won't. But just to give you just a flavor of this, the point of everything in the Bible points toward the glory of God. The Bible is not a moral book of principles on how to live, although certainly we learn how to live from the Bible. But the primary orientation of the scriptures is not the helpfulness of Christian morals, but it is the glory and the beauty and the grandeur of God. Just a, just a sampling, just a, a flavor of this. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures. We won't take time to read them all the way through, but in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, God tells Israel, his nation, that he created them for his glory. In fact, we could even go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where God says that he creates man in his own image so that man might be an image bearer, might be a reflector of God's goodness to creation. So he creates us as individuals for his glory. He creates Israel as his nation for his glory. He even lets them, he even pulls them out of their rebellion in their time in the wilderness for his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 20, he says that he acts for Israel and for us for his namesake. And so if you just did a quick little word study or phrase study of the Bible, the phrase for my glory or for my namesake, if you have a little Bible program like BibleGateway.com or something like that, uh, and just you put that little phrase in there and searched it over and over and over again in the scriptures, specifically in the Old Testament. It's, it's this display of God doing these things primarily for the purpose of the display of his own glory. So he loves Israel, not just because he loves Israel. He loves Israel for his glory, for his namesake. And likewise, he loves us as Christians for his glory. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Again, just a sampling. Listen, our salvation is not just for us because God loves us and that's where it dead ends. But it is to then reflect God's glory. Listen to this. One of the most profound and beautiful and assurance uh, uh, swelling verses in the whole Bible. Ephesians 1 verse 5 and 6. It says that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace. What that means is He saved you for His glory if you're a Christian. And so the point of everything in the Bible, we could go on, but we won't, points towards the glory of God, which means that everything in the world points to the glory of God. Listen to this beautiful quote from probably the greatest American theologian and mind, in fact, one of the greatest theologians and minds in the history of the church, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. You've been around for a while. You've probably heard me read quotes from him. He was 
the primary pastor and preacher and theologian of the Great Awakening back in the 1700s in America through his ministry and the ministry of men like George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers here in Georgia, that their ministry for the transcendence and beauty of God fueled the Christianization, really, of America. And this is what Jonathan Edwards said. This man has written volumes on theology and just nature and everything. There are libraries at Yale dedicated to this man. And this is what Jonathan Edwards said about the glory of God. Now, you have to excuse kind of the old English language here. He speaks, nobody talks like this anymore. Nobody talks like Jonathan Edwards. And I might have to define a word for you, but let me read this beautiful quote from Jonathan Edwards from an essay he wrote. Just the title of the essay just makes me want to shadow box. Listen to this. It's, the essay is called The Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. Oh, even that just makes me want to read it right there. But listen to what what he said. He said that speaking of specifically the glory of God, all that is ever spoken in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God, the refulgence. (laughs) I had to look it up. It means... It means the radiance, the brightness, the display of light, the refulgence shines upon and into the creature. That's us or any other creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning Middle and end in this affair. Isn't that a beautiful quote? That means that everything was created for God. Everything gets its glory for God. This whole universe is reflecting God. Glory. Thank you. You've gotten younger, Brother Green. Thank you. But this is true, friends. Listen, this is a very important point that I just want to draw out here. This is true of everything and every person, regardless of whether that thing or person willfully obeys God. Because God gets glory in everything. And that is true for the righteous and the evil. Listen to this very difficult scripture. This very God-oriented scripture, this very God-exalting and human-humbling scripture from Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Now, this scripture, by the way, is one of the most difficult scriptures in the whole Bible, and it is speaking about the sovereignty of God in salvation, which is a very important topic. That is not primarily the issue that I'm trying to draw out here. I want to focus our attention on the last verse that we'll read in verse 23, but let me read 19 or let me read 20 through 23 and this is what the apostle paul says to the the roman church there when he's talking about the greatness of god in all things specifically salvation he says but who are you O man to answer back to god well what does molded say to its molder why have you made me like this listen to this 21 has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel, vessel for dishonorable use? Listen to this now. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared 
for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, there is much to that verse that we're not going to unpack today. We have unpacked that before in the history of this church, but there is much to that. But here's the thing that I'm wanting to draw your heart to specifically as it relates to the glory of God. Verse 23 says that, that there are vessels of wrath that have been prepared so that God would be made glorious. That's a difficult truth. So let's bring that big truth down to reality here. That means that whether we willfully acknowledge Christ and obey Him, or whether we are ultimately, eternally judged and separated from Him forever, God doesn't lose. God maintains His justice and His glory. And He will be glorified either in the salvation of the willful response of a person, or He will be glorified in rightly and justly separating them from Him forever. That is a huge truth. That's a huge truth. What Paul is alluding to in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, this is what he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, listen, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this verse is saying that there's coming a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Every, every human knee, every human tongue will bow and confess. And every, every demonic and every, every spiritual tongue and principality will bow and confess the Lordship of Christ either willingly or involuntarily. So do you begin to get this picture of the greatness of the glory of God that, that everything exists for? God, get this biblical picture in your mind that God is not wringing his hands in anxiety over whether or not he will ultimately be glorified. He will. That is, put that in your, <laughs> you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. God will be glorified not an advocation for tobacco use i'm speaking metaphorically god will be glorified in everything do you have that biblical picture of god everything exists for the glory of god more directly there's a statement in the scripture which is humbling and it's in proverbs chapter 16 verse 4 i don't have it up on the screen but it says that everything even the wicked are made for their purpose day of destruction Everything has its purpose. So let's reflect on this for a moment now. God will be glorified in everything. Everything exists for the glory of God. This is an orientation of Scripture. It is very important for us to take in everything. Let's, let's, let's do a little meditating on this now. Everything, every galaxy, star and planet and moon, and distant celestial body exists to display the grandeur and the greatness of God. Every mountain and every valley and every lake and every stream and every beautiful created thing on this earth that maybe no human eye ever sees exists to display the greatness of God. Every country that has ever risen to some sort of organization, every ethnic group exists for the glory of God. Every government, good and bad, exists 
for the glory of God. Every family in this room and every family that has ever consisted exists for the glory of God, whether it's a good family or a bad family. Because remember, God gets glory in everything ultimately, whether in willful repentance and belief and obedience or in judgment. God gets glory. So every family, every marriage exists for the glory of God. Of God. Every child in this room exists primarily for the glory of God, not for your vicarious parenting. Children exist not to be made much of because they got the honor roll and the little league all-star team and the, the little whatever that they get and the little certificate and the baby on the board and my child's a super such and such at such and such elementary school. Those things are great, but when they consume us, they suck. We are unbiblical when we make that our focus because everything, every little kid, every cute little baby, every rascally teenager, every person in this room Black, white, Mexican, big, small, old, Southern, Californian, Minnesotan, foreigner, South African, Italian. Everything exists for the glory of God. The body of your girlfriend that you're sitting right next to right now that you are unrighteously putting your hands on. That exists for the glory of God, young man. Sex exists not so that it would dead end on selfish humanity, but sex exists for the glory of God and the display of His covenant love within marriage. Food, food, pasta and baked ziti and marinara sauce exist for the glory of God. Kit Kats, chilled in a refrigerator, exists for the glory of God because when you taste that thing, it shouldn't dead in on us, but it, we should say, oh, there is a Creator who does things good. <laughs> glory. <laughs> Money. Money exists for the glory of God, not so that we can accumulate more, so that we can hoard more stuff. I'm wondering when that show, I've never really watched it, but I've seen commercials, you know, the hoarders. These people collect all sorts of goofy stuff. When are they going to make a show about some rich cat who buys junk for himself? We're a culture of hoarders. Money, promotion, jobs, stuff exists for the glory of God, not for us. And this isn't a... A beggar's ethic. It is, a, it is an orientation of scriptures that says that everything received, we receive is from God, for God. Sports exist for the glory of God. Recreation exists for the glory of God. This, this very service exists for the glory of God. That is the end for which all things were created. And our, moves us on to our point number two. This church exists. For the glory of God. Point number one is that everything exists for the glory of God. For the good or bad. Ultimately will serve God's purpose in displaying his righteousness and glory to the world. Secondly, this church now exists for the glory of God. Friends, you know, I hope you do. That we're not doing this primarily for ourselves. We want a good place to raise our kids. And we want a place to learn and connect and have fellowship, but we're not doing this primarily for ourselves. And this church is not primarily for unbelievers. 
or to be sensitive to seekers or to grow larger. This church is primarily for God. This has several very important implications. We are not here to make life and ourselves more comfortable and functional. We are not here to see how many seekers or other people in this community, maybe from other churches, that we can draw so that we can build a big church. We are here to make much of what God has done in Christ on the cross. And we believe that when God is most glorified, it is most joyful for us. That is where true joy and rest is found, is in the glory of God. We believe that God delights to be made much of, and it is our reason for being. If, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church, you know this, or you should. If you grew up in a good Presbyterian church, the Westminster Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. So this church exists for the glory of God. Now let's bring it down. How does this relate to our new building? I want to bring a phrase into your mind and into your spirit. I should have done this earlier, but here we are a couple weeks away from moving into it. And I want to, I want to massage, I want to knead this phrase and this thinking into your spirit and your mentality as we move. The whole reason we are moving into a new building is so that we might reduce friction for the sake of the gospel. What do I mean by that? We are moving into this building so that we might reduce friction. The gospel in our city and in any city, whether it's in a faraway Muslim country with no Christians, or whether it's in the Bible Belt where a bunch of people assume there are Christians but are not, there is friction to the gospel. This world is opposed to the true message of the scriptures. It is opposed to Jesus. And so there is always resistance There's resistance. There's resistance. These chairs are resistance for some of you right now because you're so uncomfortable that you can't listen to me. And listen, I I understand that. I don't have to sit in them much. I get up and talk. That's my gig. You've got to sit and listen. The drive may be resistance for some of you. Our inability to be in this building 24-7 is resistance. And so the fact that we are moving is not because we want to be more comfortable. We are moving into a building that is more functional so that we, we might reduce the friction in our ability to speed the gospel along the track that God has us so that it might advance more clearly and more more extravagantly in our city. And that's the only reason that we are moving into a new building. <laughs> when Joseph was a little kid, I think he was about five or six, we were in this little this little uh uh the little go no it wasn't a go kart, but I'm losing the little uh the car derby things when you make the little cars, soapbox derby and, and I remember we got this little soapbox thing. We carved it. We won first place, by the way. You remember that, Joe? But, but, but there was, you could like grease up the axles and, you know, put this little, this little dust on the axles to make it go. You could do all this aerodynamic stuff on the car. But man, you could squirt this little like dust grease on the axles to make it, when you put it on the track, to make it go faster. That's what this building is. It is merely grease on the wheels of the gospel in our city. So when you go, don't, let's not be impressed with all this. It's grease. We're moving into a grease pit for the gospel. That's all this is. It's a grease pit. So that the gospel might advance. And we do this primarily through the faithful proclamation and living out of the gospel. This church exists for the glory of God. And friends, this will not always be received well by our culture. In fact, 
it will often be opposed. And although we should not be presumptuous in this, I think we should expect opposition. And I think that if we are preaching the biblical gospel, we, uh, we should use opposition as an indicator of our faithfulness. Again, you can get off the tracks on that. But I think many churches are caught up and they bow down to the false god of pragmatism and relevancy and they want to be popular. And much of American church growth is fueled because of the ego of pastors who just want a bigger church. They want to be cuter. They want to be more relevant. They, they, and they are, they are ashamed of the gospel. But as a church, we cannot be ashamed of the truth and the reality and at times the hardness of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are, listen to this, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, Paul is saying that when you preach the true gospel and live for Jesus as a community, it's going to smell like life to some people who are being saved and to those who are disobeying the clear witness scriptures. It, has become, it will be offensive and it will smell like death and people don't like the smell of death. In fact, Paul says early on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which we'll go over in a couple of weeks, the message of the cross is foolishness and it's offensive. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, this message that we preach, the gospel. But then Paul concludes here in this chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, having said that, friends, I believe, I believe wholeheartedly that it is God's desire to bless this church. I believe God wants to bless us in extravagant ways beyond what we can imagine from this vantage point. But it is presumptuous of us, or it would be presumptuous of us, to think too much about how God intends to do that. I believe biblically, as if we'll go back to the psalm that we read in Psalm 15, I believe that we stand on solid ground saying that God intends and desires to bless his people. Whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or whether it's Christians in the New or whether in our case it is Crosspoint or you case as in, in your case as an individual, God wants to bless his people. Let me read that in verse 9 of Psalm 115 that we read at the beginning. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So if I could, if I could Adapt that for us. Cross point. He will bless us. May the Lord give us increase to us and our children. May the Lord bless us. He who made the heaven and earth. May he cause us to grow biblically so that we can be more generous. So that we can add a thousand different couples like Seth and Rachel. So that the gospel would be advanced. May he give us more so that we can give away more. But I'm not just talking about numbers and size and finances. I'm talking about the grace 
of our Lord. Maybe God might intend to bless and grow this church through difficulty and strife and struggle. And he might give us an unusual dose of endurance and perseverance for the sake of the gospel in our city. That may very well be the way that God blesses us. But God, I believe, wants to bless us as a church and that it is his desire so that we might be a conduit of his blessing and not a cul-de-sac. God says to Abraham when he calls him in Genesis chapter 12, he says that I will bless you, not so that it would dead end on you, Abraham, but so that through you I could bless all the nations of the earth. Friends, I, I don't know what's next for this building. I do know some people have asked me about, you know, what do you expect? I haven't the faintest idea. I expect you guys to show up and maybe a few of your friends. Some of you have asked us about publicizing, advertising. Can I, can I share my heart with you on that? It's just not our style. Uh, there's just something that just sort of seems a little us-centered when we mail out little postcards with my picture and like, like a laboratory retriever, you know, like, I don't know. This church doesn't need a picture of Brad on a postcard. It doesn't need a, just doesn't need stuff. And look, I'm not, I'm not busting on churches that advertise. It's just, come on. This city doesn't need relevant messages on how to live better lives. It needs a group of a couple hundred people whose affections are stirred for Jesus so that their life continually reflects His glory. People don't need help. They need rescue. They don't need churches where they fit in. They need the glory of God to be brought to bear on their church. And so we're going to move. So invite some folks. Don't invite just cute people from other churches so that we're the little church. Invite people that don't have a church or that don't know Jesus and bring them. And then roll up your sleeves and let's go to work for the glory of God. Point number one is that everything exists for the glory of God. Point number two is that this church exists for the glory of God. And I conclude finally on this point. You and I, friends, exist for the glory of God. You and I exist for the glory of God. Verse 1 of Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Quickly, I conclude with these two questions. Christian, do you subconsciously really live your life in a way that says that God exists to make much of you? Or do you exist to make much of God? What's your life? What does your life shout? Non-Christian, with every bit of grace and mercy and love that, it, that I have, I tell you plainly that God will be glorified in your life. God will be glorified in your life. Either through your willful response to Him in repentance and faith in what Christ has done on the cross, or through your ultimate and final judgment. Friends, this is the gospel. The scriptures are clear. We are not decent people who need help. We are rebellious rebels who are all running away from God. And we need to be saved. And your sin 
Just like the sin of the convicted felon or the murderer or the terrorist puts you opposed to God. God would be just and righteous for his wrath on you and me. But in his grace and kindness, and this is the gospel, listen clearly, friends. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his son Christ who lived a perfect life He lived the life that you and I should have lived, but we didn't because we rebelled. And he stored up righteousness here on this earth. And then he laid down his life willfully on a cross, and he became a substitute for us. He became a sacrifice for us. He took our punishment. He stood in our stead. And he bore God's wrath. He didn't bear the Roman government's wrath. He didn't bear unbelieving Jews' wrath. He bore the wrath of God. Because he was perfect and because he was the perfect God-man substitute, he satisfied that wrath. And he extends that offer of free grace to all who will repent and believe. And so in order to be a Christian, you can't just be an agreeer with the morality or the ethics of Christianity, or you can't just grow up in the South in a Baptist or a Methodist or some other type of church. You personally have to turn, that's the word repent, you have to turn from trust in some self-righteousness or your own morality, and you have to turn from sin and rebellion, and you have to trust in Christ. And if you are hearing me right now, and you have ears to hear God is bringing illumination to your soul, and all you have to do is turn and trust in Jesus. That's it. That is justification by faith. Right now, do that. Because here's the clear witness of scriptures, friends. God will be glorified in your life. Either through your willful response right now, maybe some other date if you delay right now, or involuntarily through your judgment. And so... As I read from Spurgeon a couple weeks ago, why delay, friends? Meet me in heaven. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. And let God glorify you Himself through your salvation. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us think on these things. Lord, as the band comes back, I think we just need to, again, pause for a moment to take in your glory. So, friends, uh, as the band is preparing to lead us in a song of response, I know we've given you a lot of information today. Wonderful missionary couple. Great report on the finances of this church. And now this message on the glory of God and why we're here as individuals and as a church. Take a moment to think right now. Focus your mind. Make the decision to contemplate and to think on the glory of God. Christian, is your life oriented that way? Or is God's grace dead-ending on you? Unbeliever, has it become apparent to you right now that you're truly not born again? God will be glorified in your life. This is God's gracious call to you.
to let his glory be in your salvation rather than your judgment. Lord, now as we respond in song, I pray, God, again as I did at the beginning, that you would rouse stir our affections for Jesus, and that you would cause somebody in this room who is not yet born again to believe in Jesus. God, that as we leave this room today, that we would rest in the joy that is ours in your glory. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.